Today we move into Ephesians chapter 3 as we're working our way through the entire book of Ephesians. Last week I was out and Andrew preached an excellent sermon for us, uh, our friend from Graffiti that was down here. So I need you to think back to two weeks ago as we finished up chapter 2. And if you'll remember in Ephesians 2, there's two issues going on. The first part of Ephesians 2 is addressing the vertical relationship between human beings and God. And so we have that famous passage in Ephesians 2, 1 to 10 that talks about God being rich in mercy and pouring out his love on sinners. That's the first half of chapter 2. The second half of chapter 2 began to talk about the horizontal relationships between human beings. How is it that Jew and Gentile can now come together as one within the body of Christ. So the answer to both, to both the vertical problem and the horizontal problem is in fact Jesus Christ. And now Paul is arguing that the church, the body of Christ, is comprised of both Jew and Gentile. So today this passage that was just read for us focuses on the mystery of Christ. And we're going to define what that is in just a moment. But I want you to take you back for a moment to around the 1950s and 1960s historically in America. And there was a movement within the church world, within evangelical thought, that was stemming and coming out of the seminaries that were being trained. And this was the idea that we know as the church growth movement. And what this idea pitched and sold and promoted was that churches will grow numerically faster if they segregate by common interests, if they segregate by demographics, if they make a decision that they're going to put all of their resources into one group of people. The church will grow numerically faster if they just focus on one specific demographic. This was taught in the 50s and 60s and 70s, and it made its way into the churches in the 80s and 90s and the early 2000s, what we now know as the mega church movement. Churches grew rapidly, numerically, by catering to specific demographics and promoting specific programming with the intent of drawing people out of that specific demographic. And while it might have grown churches numerically, I'm here to tell you this morning that it was not a very healthy model biblically. Because the Bible, Paul in this passage and elsewhere throughout the New Testament, the church is not talked about segmenting into a specific affinity group and only drawing people from that group into the church. The gospel is supposed to be comprised of both Jew and Gentile, people from all walks of life, all ethnicities, all socioeconomic backgrounds, all political parties should be represented within the church of Jesus Christ. So, the church is healthier, not necessarily when it's growing numerically and catering to a specific demographic, but when it is healthy according to what Scripture teaches, when it is comprised of all people from every tongue, tribe, nation, and people that Revelation 7-9 tells us, we want to be that type of church 
That's who we want to be. Now, I don't suddenly expect us next week to have increased our Korean population by 60%. That's not what I'm saying. But I do want us to be taking seriously what Paul teaches here about how we as a church can be comprised of both Jew and Gentile from all different walks of life and still be the body of Christ according to Scripture. So this morning, we're going to talk about the mystery of Christ. We're going to look at, number one, Paul's role in the mystery of Christ. Number two, the mystery of Christ revealed. And number three, the church's role in the mystery of Christ. Number one, Paul's role in the mystery of Christ. Paul references at the very beginning of this chapter that he is a prisoner on behalf of the Gentiles. Think back through all of Paul's ministry in Acts and all the letters that you can read about. He's constantly in prison, being beat up, getting stoned, always for the sake of the gospel. Let me give you a quick rundown. Acts 14, they attempt to stone him at Iconium. In Acts 14 also, he is stoned at Lystra. In Acts 16, he is imprisoned in Philippi. A mob was formed against him in Acts 17 at Thessalonica. A riot broke out in Ephesus in Acts 19. Everywhere Paul goes, when he talks about Jesus, people don't like it. They throw stones at him, they beat him up, they imprison him. And he is saying here in these first verses of chapter 3, this imprisonment is for your sake, Gentiles. The stewardship of God's grace given to Paul was for the Gentiles. The word for stewardship here basically means the plan. Paul was given a plan by God's grace to use with the Gentiles. And this plan, Paul clearly calls a mystery. And we're going to talk about what that mystery is in a moment. But let's backtrack first and understand how Paul got to this point. In Acts chapter 9, we have the conversion of Saul. He is hit by a bright light on the Damascus Road. Then he is sent to Ananias' house. And in Acts chapter 9, verse 15, Luke tells us this. But the Lord said to him, Go, he's talking to Ananias here, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. Paul elaborates his conversion later in Galatians chapter 1 when he says this, For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through revelation of Jesus Christ. Our, student this week, our students this weekend, we talked a lot about how the gospel was shared with them by somebody else. They learned about Jesus from a parent, from a Sunday school teacher, from a classmate at school. Well, you know how Paul learned the gospel? Directly from Jesus. No one shared the gospel with Paul. Now, that's not an excuse for us not to share. But Paul regularly throughout his letters makes it clear that the revelation that he relieved or that he believed in, that he received, came directly from Jesus himself. So Paul takes a little bit of extra pride in the fact that God set him apart through Jesus blinding him on the Damascus road for him to go and share the gospel with others. And he says this mystery came to him 
in the same way that he received the gospel. So, notice in verse 3 of the passage that we just read. I'm still not going to define the mystery for you because I want you to wait a minute. But in verse 3, it says, The mystery was made known to me. We've been doing a lot of work in Ephesians on learning our grammar. And this is a passive tense verb. The revelation, the mystery was made known to me. That's passive. In other words, Paul didn't go out and seek this mystery for himself. He was not converted because of his own doing. He did not receive the gospel because he was a good person, because he earned it, because he achieved it. He received it from someone else. God sought Paul out in the great plan of God. Paul was the recipient of this mystery that we will define in just a moment. But before we get to that mystery, think back about Paul's life. What do you know about Paul? We know a lot about Paul. Number one, we know that prior to faith in Christ, he's probably the worst person you've ever met in your entire life. He killed people. He stoned people. He judged people. He was the definition of hypocrisy. But here's the scary thing. He thought he was being obedient to God. That's what's really scary. So in Paul's hatred, in his murders, in his stoning of Stephen, or standing there giving approval of Stephen's stoning in Acts chapter 8, all of those things Paul thought he was doing out of obedience to God. Now that's scary. But this is what Paul thought. As a Pharisee, a Jew who was zealous for the law, the prophets, and the writings. Nobody knew their Old Testament, even though it wasn't called the Old Testament at that point. But nobody knew their Old Testament better than Paul. He knew the scriptures well. Would it not have made sense then for Jesus to decide that, Paul, I want you to go and be my apostle to the Jewish people? Because you're already an expert in the law. You already know how to relate to what it's like to be a Jew. Now you have been converted, so go to your Jewish brothers and sisters and share the gospel with them. Would that have not made sense logically? Yes, it would have. But guess what? God doesn't always work according to human logic, does he? No, he made a plan in his divine sovereignty that the very man who would have been the perfect evangelist for the Jewish people was sent to a people that he was not at all familiar with. Why would God do that? Because it makes Paul depend on God. It makes Paul depend on the Spirit as he goes from town to town. If he goes to the Jewish people, he can rely on his own knowledge. He can rely on his own relationships that he has already established with the Pharisees and the Sadducees and all of these people. And God says, you know, it might make sense on paper for me to send you to the Jewish people, but I'm afraid you're going to be prideful. So let me send you to the very people that you don't want to go to, that you don't have anything in common with, and that you will have to sit down and teach them faithfully the scriptures because they will not know them. This is how God chose to work. The best plan according to man pales in comparison to the plan set in motion by God himself. It might have made sense on paper for Paul to go to the Jews. God said, nope, 
I'm sending you from town to town to the Gentiles. Paul makes clear here that this plan was not made known to men in any other generation, the passage tells us. But it was revealed to the holy apostles and the prophets. Now, is Paul teaching here that there is no reference whatsoever in the Old Testament to Gentile inclusion or Gentile involvement in God's plan? Of course not. That's not what he's teaching. You can read Isaiah. You can read Jeremiah. There's so many Old Testament prophets that you can read that allude to the fact that the Gentiles will one day be included. But the revelation that Paul receives here is unique to the New Testament. And that is that these Gentiles will be incorporated into the same family that the Jewish brothers and sisters that were in Christ were incorporated into. The body of believers comprised of both Jew and Gentile was a new revelation by the Spirit given to Paul in the New Testament. There is foreshadowing of it in the prophets. There is foreshadowing of it throughout the Old Testament. But it has not come to fruition until Paul's time, the very man who despised all non-Jews was the man God used to proclaim the gospel to the very people that at one time he hated. Now, what is this mystery? What is the mystery of Christ revealed here? Verse 6 in our passage gives us the answer. So if you have your little scripture journal, you can underline these. And it is this, that the Gentiles, number one, are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Fellow heir means that now the Gentiles will inherit the very same promises of the Jewish people. And they are also now members of this same body and partakers of the promise. Think back to chapter 2. Flip back in your Bible or in your scripture journal to chapter 2, verse 15, verse 16, and verse 21, when Paul talked about the Jews and Gentiles becoming one humanity in verse 15, one body in verse 16, and one holy temple in verse 21. And if you look back earlier in chapter 2, verse 12, I want you to contrast in chapter 2, verse 12, with the way Paul talks about the Gentiles here in chapter 3, verse 6. So look back at verse 12 of chapter 2. They were at one time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth, strangers to the covenant of promise, had no hope, and were without God in the world. Contrast that with verse 6 of chapter 3. What are they now? Fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ. What a contrast. What causes this to happen? And the answer is the blood of Jesus Christ. That is the only way that the Gentiles from chapter 2 can now enter into the status of what we see here in chapter 3. It had nothing to do with Paul had nothing to do with the Jews, had nothing to do with the Gentiles. It had everything to do with the blood of Christ shed on the behalf of sinners. His death ensured that anyone, Jew, Gentile, black, white, rich, poor, who repents of their sin and believes in faith 
is now included in this family. The righteousness of Jesus is now imputed onto all of those who have repented of their sin and believed in faith. And so, as I always say, when God looks at you, if you are in Christ, he sees the righteousness of his son in you. And he says, well done, good and faithful servant. But when he looks at you and you do not have the righteousness of his son in you, he sees a sinner and he exercises his justice and his wrath. That's why every single week we talk about the gospel. We preach the gospel. That is the good news that anyone, and I actually mean anyone, who repents of their sin and believes in faith can be included in the family of God. Paul was made a minister of this gospel by God's grace given to him by the working of his power. Paul didn't earn it because he lived a good life. He most certainly didn't. Acts chapter 8, he is standing there giving approval as all of the men under his power are stoning a Christian. He was zealous to stamp out anyone who loved Jesus. So there's no way that Paul earned this calling as a holy apostle. But yet God bestowed his grace on Paul, his unmerited favor on Paul, not because he deserved it, but because it was in God's plan. Paul's calling was to preach, he tells us here, the unsearchable riches of Christ to the Gentiles. Unsearchable here, meaning unfathomable, untraceable. Man is not able to figure it out. That's what it means. But it was revealed by God to Paul to be understood by the Gentiles. Verse 9, it says, Paul will bring light for everyone, both Jew and Gentile. What is the plan of the mystery hidden in for ages in God who created all things? Have you ever asked, why did God wait until the first century AD for this plan of Gentile and Jews coming together into the body of Christ? Why did he wait so long? And the answer is, God is God, and we are not. The more we try in our human, fleshly, sinful minds to understand every mystery of the universe, the more our blood pressure will elevate and our cholesterol will rise. God doesn't want you to know every single thing about his grand plan. But he has revealed to you every single thing you need to know. And he has revealed it to you in this book. So as our speaker said yesterday, a, a phrase that I've said before, if you want to know God's will or you want to hear from God, read your Bible. If you want to hear from God audibly, read your Bible out loud. That's the truth. If you want to know God's will, it's right here. Study it. Know it. Pray through it. Memorize it. He wants to talk to you. And he already has talked through this book. Now, why? Why did he wait? Why? Why wait until the first century AD? This actually takes us back to chapter 1 
when we saw that phrase repeated, to the praise of his glorious grace, to the praise of his glorious grace, God in his perfect plan and in his sovereignty decided that at this moment he would reveal this mystery to Paul because that is the perfect moment for God to receive ultimate glory for this plan of bringing Jew and Gentile together. Which brings us to our third point. What is the church's role in the mystery of Christ? Verse 10, so that, we've talked about this all series long, it indicates purpose. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. How does God plan on making it known? Underline it three times, highlight it, circle it through the church. Yes, friends, the church is a big, big deal. This is how God chose to manifest his wisdom to the world. That means that the church matters a lot. One pastor that I read and study gives a great definition of what the church is, and that is that the church is the gospel made visible to the community. That's what the church is. So if the church is the gospel made visible to the community, that means, number one, that we have to have meaningful membership. That we have to have people that actually want to join for the right reasons. It means that we have to make sure that people have been converted in order to join membership-wise in our church. We must make sure that after they have joined and confessed their faith in Christ, that they maintain their holiness, that they care about making sure that the words that they say and the life that they live match up. And we must hold them accountable and discipline them if necessary when their actions don't match up with what they confess they believe. That is all within the confines of the church's role. According to Matthew 18, Jesus himself tells us. Now, how can this type of membership within the church happen? It can only happen when the people sitting in the pews care about each other. Where they don't view each other just as acquaintances that they say hey to when they walk in and they walk out on Sundays. No, no, no. You cannot have this type of relationship with just casual involvement. You have to be deeply committed to this. You have to invite people into your life and tell them, I need you to hold me accountable. If I'm out of line, I need you to tell me. I need you to pray for me. I need you to study the scriptures with me. When we commit to hold one another accountable and pray for one another and disciple one another and commit to raising up the next generation together, that will make a healthy church. And that is the type of church that will be visible to the community. People will notice that type of church. We should not lower the bar. We should not make it easier for people to come to the church. Yes, anybody is welcomed to worship with us, but not everyone is welcomed 
to enter into the family of God unless they repent of their sin and they believe in the finished work of Christ on the cross and in the power of his resurrection. Hear me very clearly this morning. It is not helpful to lost people out in the community to see a church that is full of lost people. That is not helpful. What helps lost people is when they walk into a community, the church, the bride of Christ, and they see a group of people that acts vastly different from anything that they have ever seen, and they leave on Sunday and they say, I want to be a part of something like that. Lost people will be attracted to the church when the people within the church live lives of holiness, share the gospel with their friends and their neighbors and their coworkers, make their, their church a priority, not just one item on the calendar if nothing else is happening that weekend. No, when they sell out to making the gospel made visible to the community, when this becomes the ultimate priority in their life, people will be attracted to that. Verse 11, Paul tells us that the church was not just some rushed plan that God instituted when the Jews didn't believe in Jesus. This is not some plan B. This is not like Jesus had the idea, all right, it's for the Jews. He ascends into heaven and he notices, you know what? None of them are following after me. All right, um, oh, hurry, Paul, will you just take the message to the Gentiles since the Jews messed up? No, that's not how it happened. From the beginning of time, this was God's plan. That Jesus would come, that he would proclaim the good, gospel, the, the good news of the gospel to his Jewish brothers and sisters. That he would ascend into heaven and now he leaves his disciples and his apostles to go and to proclaim the gospel to both Jew and Gentile. This was not plan B. This was plan A from the beginning of time. That's why we support the starting of new churches. That's why we're praying and supporting City View Church in Atlanta. That's why we want to partner and support our mission boards that are planning churches internationally and all across North America. That's why we want to pray for other churches in our community that faithfully proclaim the gospel. It's not just about us. There's 50 other Southern Baptist churches in Dothan, Alabama, and we should be praying for all of them. They all matter. We are not in competition with any other church that is faithfully proclaiming the good news of the gospel. Whether they're Baptist or not, we are collectively the body of Christ. Christ's death on the cross now gives, Paul says, all believers boldness and access to him. Do you enter into that relationship with God that way? When you sit down every day, every night, whenever you spend your time with the Lord, and you begin praying, you begin reading the scriptures, you begin memorizing the scriptures, do you approach that time with boldness and confidence, knowing that God desires to spend time with you? That's what Paul says here. Approach God with boldness, knowing that you have access. And if I'm being honest here, sometimes I don't approach him that way. I approach him casually. I approach him haphazardly. I approach him just checking off the boxes. But Paul makes it very clear 
that we can approach him with confidence and boldness because we have access to him directly because what Jesus has done. So as we gear up and get closer to Easter, one of the things that we're going to do the whole week of Easter is every day at noon, we're going to pray in that chapel every single day for one hour. Anyone is invited to come on their lunch break. If you don't work, come on, bring your kids, whatever. We're all going to gather in that chapel. And we're going to be praying all Holy Week long from 12 to 1 that God would soften hearts that will show up in this building and in buildings all around our community. They'll show up on Easter when they won't show up any other time of the year. So we want the Spirit to be moving in their hearts. Paul concludes this passage by telling the Ephesians not to lose heart because his suffering is for their glory. The sufferings that Paul endures and that all Christians, for that matter, endure can be used to promote the name of Jesus Christ so that he can be lifted up and that he can be magnified. So ask yourself this question today. We have just seen this mystery that is revealed to Paul. And that mystery is that the church is God's plan for reaching the nations with the gospel. With that premise out there, ask yourself personally this question. How important is the church to me? Based on what Paul teaches here, if it's God's plan A, is the church plan A in your life? Or is it plan F? or X, or plan Z. Brothers and sisters, it can't be. If Jesus gave his life for his bride, the church has to be, yes, plan A according to Scripture, but also plan A in our hearts. It should be the place that we desire to go more than anywhere else. The place where we go to bed on Sunday, uh, Saturday night, anticipating waking up to come and gather with our family. Not begrudgingly, but go to bed with like butterflies in your stomach. That's how I felt last night. We had a big day. We had a lot of things happen this weekend. I couldn't go to sleep because I was excited to be here this morning. Plan A. The church is God's plan A. The only way you can have that type of mentality Two reasons, really. Number one is if you've been converted. If you haven't been converted, if you haven't repented of your sin, if you haven't believed in the good news of the gospel, I don't expect you to have butterflies in your stomach every Saturday night as you go to bed. But if you have, and the church doesn't, within you, strike you to have energy and passion and excitement, can I just encourage you to get on your knees and ask God why that is, and to pray that he would move in your heart because he will, make it a priority. It is the manifold wisdom of God which he makes known to a dying world the price that his son paid for, for the salvation of all those who will receive him. 